Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I am honored. I'm humbled. I cannot believe that I get to do this. What a privilege. What a wonderful time with the ladies. Um, my husband and I uh, come, we are the first church out of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, uh, 30 years old. I felt like I was in Brooklyn Tabernacle this morning. Amazing, amazing choir guys. Oh, OMG, that's all I could say. <laughs> talent, but anointed talent, and that's really what matters. Um, your musicians are second to none. And Pastor uh, Dan and Becky, oh my goodness, what precious, very, very precious people, very down to earth. Um, and it's an honor for me to be here this morning. The Bible says where two or three are gathered together in his name, he shall be present. And I looked up the definition of together in the, in the dictionary, and it says a gathering under the same roof, same place, same time. But the word together in the context where the Bible speaks about it in Matthew, it means much more than a gathering under the same roof, the same time, the same place, because we know that people could live under the same roof at the same time and the same place and not really be together, right? That verse is speaking about the togetherness in the together. God wants us to have warm fellowship and agreement with one another. The Bible says in Acts, they were together in one mind and in one accord. So this kind of togetherness is the catalyst for revival. The Bible says in Psalm 133 how good and pleasant it is when the brethren gather together in unity and then it says, in that togetherness, that's where God's presence falls. He's, the Godhead said, let us make man. They were in agreement. Nehemiah said, let us build a wall. And this kind of togetherness in the body of Christ renders the enemy powerless. It was no wonder that Jesus prayed his last prayer. He was going to be tortured and, and butchered, but he said, Father, make them one. Make them one. Make them be together. So I want to pray today because I want to speak about the very thing that we try to cause us not to be together, the very thing that destroys our togetherness. Father, I thank you for this wonderful church. I thank you that we feel the holy presence of the Lord. I thank you that your name is honored and reverenced in this place. And I know, God, that the best is yet to come. I'm asking, Lord, that as I speak the word that I believe you've put on my heart to speak, that you would open up every single heart. And we would have a little time of examination and maybe a little bit of surgery from the divine physician so that nothing, not even a little dust ball, would be in the way in our heart to hinder our togetherness in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Now, I was kind of wondering why God would want me to come here first time and speak this word, but I know that God has great plans for this place. How many in this church are clean freaks? You are OCD, fanatical, crazy men and women. Maybe there's Felix Ungers in the room. How many, how many are like that? All right, we have a few. We have a few clean houses. <laughs> well, I'll give you a little Snapple fact about me. I am OCD, fanatical, clean. I was raised in a boarding school, and that's a whole nother story, but I was put to clean. Almost like when you see the movie Annie, 
you know, you had to scrub the, uh, the tiles with the toothbrush. And, and, and that kind of stuff just kind of stayed with me. And it's not a bad thing if it's underneath the control of the Holy Spirit. I was told when I first got married, you're not clean, you're sterile. Uh, I remember I remember one time, you know, people would give my kids like little toys and all these little pieces and they would just drive me crazy because I would find them everywhere. So one day I took my, one of my son's toys and I put them outside in a garbage bag and the garbage didn't come that day and my son was walking home from school and he found the garbage bag and he was like, Mom! I said, oh my goodness, somebody came in our house and tried to steal your toys. <laughs> so, I mean, if I buy a candle, it's, it's, it's the candle that smells like fresh laundry. You know, that's, that's just how I am. I could come home from a conference. I could speak four, five, six times. I could get home 12 o'clock at night, open my suitcases and wash all my clothes and have, and anybody else's clothes that are in the house. And I have them ironed and put away. I could, I could feed 50 people and I will not go to bed until everything is done. I have a funny story when, um, I first got saved, um, I, uh, I bought my house and um, we were starting to like do little Bible studies in our house. We didn't really know what we were doing. And um, so this lady, she had twin uh, girls and when she brought them to school, when she went home, she discovered that her husband left her. She, she had to go to the divorce. Um, uh, seminar, and he, he emptied out everything in the house. So she came to my house and she was hysterical crying. And of course I was crying with her, but I had a glass kitchen table at the time. So every time she would cry, you know, she would wipe her tears and she would blow her nose and she would put her fingers on the table. And, and I had my bottle of Windex on my hip. <laughs> and, and I was like, I am so sorry. <laughs> and like two hours later, she says, if you clean that table one more time. <laughs> and, um, but I want to speak about something that's way more important than a clean house. I want to speak about a clean heart because our hearts are the Holy Spirit's home and the Holy Spirit deserves to live in a clean house where his voice can be heard, where his breath can be felt without any type of obstruction in the way. The bottom line is God wants his people clean, squeaky clean. He's not only the king of kings, but he's the king of clean. He's the original Mr. Clean, reverently speaking. He doesn't like dirt. If there were rugs in heaven, I'm sure there would be lines in them. If there were beds in heaven, there would be no dust balls. Heaven is spotless. He's called the spotless lamb. He says he's going to present the church without spot or wrinkle. The Bible says he washed all our sins away. The word of God washes us daily. If husbands really want a clean house, they are to wash their wives with the water of the word. On the Mount of Transformation, the Bible says his clothes shone brilliantly white like a Clorox commercial. At the tomb, they found his clothes neatly folded. I was like, yes. <laughs> he cleansed the temple. He told the lepers, go and wash. Revelation says those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb have the right to enter heaven. Jesus told the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty. He's all about the inside. The Bible says man judges the outer, but God's all about the inside. David prayed, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Those with pure hands and a clean heart. 
And oftentimes, our standard of clean and God's standard of clean are two very different standards. Sometimes, being in church a long time, the little things we learn to live with are really totally unacceptable as far as God is concerned. But we don't realize until we come face to face with the light of his word. The Bible says the entrance of your word brings light. And what was acceptable before becomes acceptable no more. I had a life-changing experience. As I told the ladies, I am not a, a Bible teacher by any means. And any sermon God ever gives me, it comes through my own life. It's uh, my own life's journey, my own mistakes. Uh, somehow, God really does use in my life all things. I had a life-changing experience a number of years ago. A woman in my church that I love dearly, she asked me, can she have a meeting with me? And of course I said yes. So we're sitting in the office and she starts to pour out her heart to me. And she starts to tell me, she says, Maria, she says, I have had this accumulation of dirt in my heart. She said, little by little, I started to gather all these offenses against people. She said, and I started to withdraw from the body, and I, uh, I, I, I felt very, very depressed and, 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 and isolated. She says, but as only God would have it, she said, he cornered me, and he started to deal with me issue by issue. And he just started to clean me up. She said, and all of a sudden, I felt so clean. She said, I felt so bright. I felt like I haven't felt in years. And she said, I'm only coming to you because I want to be accountable. And then she said the word, she says, Maria, she says, I never want to go back to that place again. Now, here I am. I'm the pastor's wife. I'm sitting in the room with this member of the congregation, and she's telling me how clean she is, and I am feeling so convicted, and I'm realizing, God, she's clean, and I'm not clean. I have all this stuff in my heart that I don't even think I realized, or maybe I did. Maybe the dust ball that I'd go after in the corner of my house like a lunatic as though it were an enemy invasion, I had left in the corner of my heart. I wasn't as meticulous with my heart as I was with my house. I wasn't living according to code. And the Holy Spirit challenged me that day. I went home and I just got before the Lord, and, and he spoke to me, and he said, Maria, I, I don't want you to only be a church woman. I want you to be my woman. I don't only want you to be a, a woman that teaches the word. I want you to be a woman that does what the word says. And I've come to realize that there is no better feeling than having a clean heart. And what I'm going to speak to you today is, is not a sermon. It is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. It's something that we have to be conscious every single day to, be, to give this examination in our heart to make sure we have no buildup. Solomon, the wisest of all men, could have penned anything else because he was brilliant. He made aqueducts and he built a temple. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes in Proverbs 4.23, he says, above all else, make this your number one priority. Guard your heart. What he was saying was guard your own heart because out of your heart flows all of life's issues. The message version says, keep vigilant watch over your heart because that's where life starts. In other words, Solomon was saying, if you get it right here, you'll get it right everywhere. But if you get it wrong here, 
You're going to get it wrong everywhere. This is the one place we cannot afford to get it wrong. Our heart is the source that directs our life. Everything is filtered through the heart. It's the foundation for all our perceptions, our understanding, the way we view life. It's the foundation of all our decision-making. It's the core of our being. Every experience first passes through the heart. Every interaction registers in the heart. The heart is involved in every facet of our life. It's the seed of our emotions. That's why God's word aggressively urges us, make this your number one priority, guard your own heart. We're the bishop. We're the overseer of our heart. We're to, we're to give proper oversight. Because our heart is our domain. It's a city within itself. Wars are fought in the heart. They're won or lost, really, in the heart. It's the entry point for either good or bad. Matthew 15, 19 says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, theft, adultery, so forth and so on. So in other words, sin is conceived in the heart. It's the heart that's the source for all of the things that come out of all of our behavior. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety stored in the heart causes depression. Fearful thoughts stored in the heart causes the heart to sink or be weighed down. The heart is a deceiver. Jeremiah says, our hearts are wicked and deceitful. Who could know it? It's a revealer. Matthew 12, 34 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our words just reveal our thoughts. Our lips are just the opening that allows our hearts to speak. The heart can be broken. It says that in Matthew 34, 18. It can feel con condemned. 1 John 3, 20. But the Bible says, even though your heart condemns you, I'm greater than your heart. And on the positive side, the heart has the capability of being pure. It has the capability of total surrender. Otherwise, God wouldn't have told us, love the Lord your God with your whole heart. Our first experience with salvation first happens in the heart. We believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth. Psalm 119, thy word I have hidden in thy heart. So our hearts are a treasure chest. It's a storage for God's word. The heart has the capability to think. Proverbs 23, 7. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And that's the premise of my book. Um, in um, uh, 1991, science finally caught up to what was written by Solomon thousands and thousands of years ago. Because science discovered that the heart has its own brain. And the brain in the heart is connected to the brain in the head. And it sends messages to one another, not necessarily agreeing with one another. So in other words, the heart has a mind of its own. And the cranial brain is our logic, but our, the brain in our heart is our emotions. And that's why we say things like, my mind is saying one thing, but my heart is saying something else. So the thoughts we think in our heart is who we really are. And that's why we must diligently keep watch over our hearts because we really live from the inside out. Now, because the heart is so vital to our spiritual and in our emotional well-being, there's an enemy, you know about the enemy, and he wants a piece of the action. He doesn't want our hearts to remain clean. He wants a zone, a marked off place, a small piece of property. And his number one weapon of choice is the weapon of offense. Anybody ever been offended? Anybody ever been offended in church? There ain't no hurt like a church hurt. I think somebody from the South said that. It sounds kind of Southern. <laughs> it's probably a song. 
This weapon, the weapon of offense, gets the award for most successfully crippling God's people. It's the number one cause of bringing God's people to a standstill. It's the number one cause of Christians falling away and going AWOL, so to speak, because offense took root in their hearts. And Jesus knows how deadly offense is. And he says in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're in the middle of worship, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, he doesn't say, if you have something against them, that's, that's already a done deal. But he says, if you know somebody has something against you in the middle of singing, thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. He says, stop what you're doing and go to your brother and your, or your sister and go and make restitution. Reconcile with them because you are your brother's keeper. I'm holding even you accountable for those that have something against you because offense is so deadly. See, that's God's standard, but this is our standard. Or should I say, this has been my standard. This is the way we do it in church. We're in the middle of worship, and all of a sudden we rem remember that sister so-and-so, she's been a little cold to us. She had like a little attitude. So we're in the middle of singing, thou, O Lord, are a shield. You're my glory, you're the lifter of my head. Yeah, I wonder what's wrong with her. She's been like acting. So see, that just gives me a little more fuel to worship a little bit harder. And I'm hoping she's in back of me, seeing me, that her attitude isn't affecting me. And there's the dust fall. So what happens to do you... To, to us is you can only put so much stuff underneath the rug until the stuff comes out from underneath the rug. So, you know, week after week, we like seeing sister so-and-so, and she had a little attitude with us, but, you know, we, we worship in hard. <laughs> we on our knees. We prostrate before the Lord. She ain't going to let me. She ain't going to stop me from worshiping the Lord. And then what happens is, we're outside, we see sister so-and-so, we're with our friends, or we're with our family, and all of a sudden we say something like, hmm, I don't know what's wrong with her, but she's been acting cold to me all the day. And now the dust ball just snowballed. And now all of a sudden, you have somebody else in the mix, and then we have little divisions, little pockets of divisions and people start to take different people's sides. And see, Jesus is saying, no, no, because this is the stuff that destroys churches. Crack cocaine isn't going to destroy the church. Somebody running off with the pastor isn't going to destroy the church as much as this kind of stuff destroys the church. And no one is exempt. No one is exempt from being, uh, uh, from, from being offended. Uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. I mean, the Bible says he ate locust. He wore camel hair. hair. The Bible says that no greater uh, man was born among women than John the Baptist. And yet he was in danger of being offended. Surely this guy was past the point of being offended, but yet he was in danger of being offended. Matthew 11, two, uh, 2 and 3 says, when John heard in prison, now he knew the Old Testament. The Old Testament says that he came to set the prisoner free. So John, he's in prison and he heard what Christ was doing. He hears all the miracles he's doing. He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one 
or should we expect someone else? John, who saw the dove descend upon Jesus and heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. He has a moment of doubt because he's offended of what God has or has not done for him. And Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended on account of me. And failed expectations are a great source of offense. And it could happen to the best of us because of what God has or has not done for us. In Luke 17, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, with his peeps, so to speak. And, and, and I'm going to give you a little paraphrase of what he says. He's giving them a heads up, a warning about events that will happen that have the potential to trip them up. And he wants, them to, he wants to prepare them how to handle this uh, test. Jesus was saying, it's simply impossible, unthinkable to conceive that you could live this life without the golden opportunity of being offended. Unless you live on Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, unless you live in a cave somewhere, this is a definite, you could take it to the bank. And here's a little more bad news, guys. He says, not only is the offense inevitable, it's going to happen often between brothers and sisters, people that are close to you in the church community. Remember, 70 times 7. It's going to happen often. It's going to happen between people you know. It's going to be personal. And he doesn't say, you know, guys, offenses are going to come but don't worry, I'll protect you. He doesn't say offenses will come, but not to my people. No, no, he's an equal opportunity distributor in the offense department. And let me just say this as a side note. How we handle offense is the litmus test of our spiritual maturity. It's not if we know the Greek or the Hebrew. It's how we handle offense. So he's talking to his disciples and he's painting this thing, this offense as, 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 as an invasion or a sudden disruption into your daily life as you know it that could make you vulnerable. Now, the word offense comes from the Greek word scandalon. And that's where we get the word in English, scandalous, or mischievous, or premeditated, um, or cloaked. Coincidentally or not, a scandalon is a small, unassuming block of wood that keeps the trap door to a cage propped open. So for example, bait is placed inside of the cage and the bait is specific to the animal intended to be trapped. In other words, if you want to get a mouse, you're going to put cheese. If you want to get a squirrel, you're going to put nuts. It's tailor-made. It's personal. And the victim accidentally, lured by the bait, knocks into the scandalon or the block of wood or the stumbling block, and suddenly the, the, the door shuts shuts uh, uh, closed, slams shut, trapped, trapping its victim inside. And in a moment, life as that victim knew it has changed forever. His, his uh, uh, freedom has been taken away. So is it safe to say that offense is a setup, a lure, a snare, a trap, a stumbling block that suddenly blindsides you it's tailor-made to entrap us in a cage of negative emotions, and the goal of the enemy is to cage us in bitterness and resentment. And now he's got us where he wants us. And because we're trapped, we can't see further than the cage permits, so our vision is obstructed, and we have to eat what's being fed to us. And the enemy, who's the master of embellishment, will inflate and blow that offense out of proportion, making it larger than life. And now we've been taken captive to do his will. Because when offense is not dealt with properly, usually the offended becomes the offender. 
And that's why Jesus was saying in the conversation in Luke 17, he says, watch yourselves. He says, don't worry about the one that offends you. He says, I'll take care of them. He says, woe to them, but watch yourself. Because if you think being hurt by someone you love is bad, just wait till you see what bitterness and resentment will do to you. Not only will it control your mind, it will destroy your, your peace, it will control your moods, and it will totally change who you are. It will affect and infect your anointing. It'll shorten the call of God on your life. And once offense takes root in our hearts, how many know what I'm talking about? You're going nowhere fast because it's all you can think about. And if you value the call of God on your life, you must take every precaution not to allow yourself to be caged in by that offense which was tailor-made, sent by the enemy to take you out. Otherwise, every decision, every word will be filtered through that offense. Your life choices are at stake. Proverbs 18, 19 says, an offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. In other words, it's easier to get inside a city that's barricaded with armored guards than to reach somebody that's been offended. And when we look throughout the Bible, we can see how holding on to offense has wrecked the call of God on different people's life. Very quickly, 2 Samuel 13, there's Absalom, David's son, and his brother, Amnon, raped his sister, Tamar. And David, his father, was angry, but he did nothing about it. Deep offense comes when we feel unprotected by those that we feel should come to our aid. When we feel unprotected by our family members or people we look up to. And the day Amnon raped Tamar, Absalom never moved on. He grew older chronologically, but he was stuck in the land of offense. He had the potential to be a great influencer, but he ends up causing great division in his father's kingdom, and he was accidentally hung. I want you to note that. That's important. The next man we're going to speak about is in 2 Samuel 15. His name was Ahithophel. He was David's closest advisor. The Bible says that when he spoke, he spoke as the oracle of God. Ahithophel, some commentators believe that he was the grandfather of Uriah, and some believe that he was the grandfather of Bathsheba. But we know the story. David had Uriah killed to cover his tracks. Deep offense comes when our king, our leader, our authority doesn't practice what he preaches. Ahithophel, who was once the oracle of God, the Bible says now became the mouthpiece of Satan. He hooks up with Absalom. It is amazing how offended people find each other. You could sit in the second row, and for some reason, they become best friends with the person that's all the way on top of the balcony, and you say, how did they even meet each other? But there's something about offended people that draw together like a magnet. And usually, just like it happened in this situation, when Absalom approached Ahithophel, of course it was to offer a sacrifice. It was for something spiritual. It was for something religious. I mean, let's get together and pray for the pastor and his wife. Let's get together and pray for Bethesda. And the Bible says that once he gave the wrong advice, because the anointing of God was no longer on him, the Bible says he hung himself. In John 12, it says six days before the Passover, Jesus is invited to be the guest of honor at the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And it was going to be a celebration. The Lord had raised Lazarus from the dead. And as Jesus never traveled alone, he always brought either 12 or 120. You never knew who was coming to dinner. 
that's why poor Martha was like so frazzled. She thought it was going to be her and Jesus and she was going to show off her cooking skills. But of course, he comes with a whole bunch and she's trying to like kill a, a cow in the backyard and her sister Mary is like sitting at his feet, you know. So the Bible says all of a sudden this Mary of Bethany, she takes out this precious pint of ointment. We spoke about this in the uh, women's conference. And she starts to pour out a pint on Jesus' feet. And the Bible says Judas became indignant. Somehow he was offended at Mary's actions. Now, I don't know about you, but I had to wonder, why in the world would Judas be offended because Mary poured out a pint of ointment on Jesus' feet? What did Mary's actions have to do with Judas? Well, I figured it out. Judas was the treasurer. He was the treasurer. He was in charge of anything valuable that had to do with Jesus' ministry. Being the treasurer was his identity. Everybody knew that. He always wore that long hanging money bag that I'm sure he swirled around, letting everybody know I'm in charge. I have the key to the office. I'm the one in charge of the bulletin. I'm the one that sings the solo. I'm the one that gets flowers on Mother's Day. I'm the one. I'm the one. And this nobody, this Mary, she bypasses him holding the money bags, and she goes right to Jesus. I mean, how dare they go right to Pastor Dan? They are only in this church a month. Don't they know? I've been waiting 30 years. I've been waiting 30 years to say hello to him. And she just went right, and, and he's laying hands on her, and he's anointing her with oil. I, I just can't believe the nerve of some people pushing their way in. It's my turn. It's my time. You know how we do in church. I mean, this didn't go in line with protocol. And Judas's pride was bruised, and he was offended, but he disguises it in this spiritual casing. He says, why this waste, pray tell? You know how we do. Pastor, do you think that was really a good idea that she just came up to? And Jesus says, leave her alone. What she did was ordained by God. Don't you hate that? When you really, when, when God turns around and just rebukes you? Does that ever happen? Any, it happens to me all the time. All the time. That's the last thing you want to hear. And the next chapter, now the offended becomes the offender. And the Bible says, and supper being ended, Satan put into the unguarded heart of Judas to betray Jesus. The enemy seized the moment, and now it's a done deal. The cage slams shut. And now because G Judas, his heart was unguarded, he betrays Christ, he betrays his call, and he forfeits his anointing, and he hangs himself. Maybe someone can help me on the keyboards he hangs himself. Hanging on to offense is spiritual suicide. Hanging on to offense is a Christ killer. It kills God's spirit from working in you, and it hinders God's spirit from moving in your midst. Now, let's go back to the conversation. Jesus tells the apostles, listen, this is going to happen, and you have to keep on forgiving. And the apostles, who never asked them for an increase of faith when he told them how to how to go out and raise the dead. He, they asked God, give us an increase of faith because they knew it was easier to raise the dead than forgive when you've been hurt. It's a big deal. When you're offended, when you're overlooked, when you're bypassed, this is the toughest test you and I will ever face. And Jesus says, you don't need more faith. 
You just need genuine faith. Little bit, size of a mustard seed. What's genuine faith? This is my definition of genuine faith. You want God's will over your feelings. And if you want God's will over your feelings, you could say to that, that spirit of offense, my heart belongs to him. Get out. You don't belong here. Jesus, he likens the offense to a sycamine tree. Now listen to me. Is it a coincidence that Jesus starts the conversation speaking about offense, which was a small block of wood, and ends the conversation in Luke 17 speaking about a sycamine tree? What started as a small, unassuming block of wood ends with the largest, most weighty, massive tree there was. A sycamine tree wasn't a random pick like nothing in the Bible is. It's very significant. It was known to grow over 30 feet tall. It was known to have the most complicated root system. And it was extremely hard to kill Rabbis believed it would take 600 years to untangle the roots, which, are, which was the tree's life expectancy. So six or seven generations, six or seven lifetimes. And the tree was so unusual because it grew best in dry conditions. It produced the most bitter figs, even though the figs on the tree looked like figs from a good tree, but when you went to bite it, because it was so bitter, you could only take a little bit at a time. And this was the wood of choice used to make caskets. Jesus, knowing that when a fence is not de dealt with, it has the same potential as that tree. It's weighty. It's massive. It's complicated. It has a long life expectancy. It's handed down from generation to generation. The roots entangle every area of our lives. It thrives in, in dryness and it produces bitter fruit. And it's almost impossible to kill. And it will surround you. It will encase you. It will enclose you with death, burying you six feet under. And Jesus was saying in this conversation, you better deal with something when it's small before it becomes something massive. And offense is no respecter of persons. I started off telling you today that I'm not a Bible scholar, but I do have a degree in offensology. I have a master's, a doctorate, and that's how I got this word. There were two women in my church, and I loved them. I brought them both to the Lord. I worked with them for years. And all of a sudden, they teamed up, and they started just talking and causing little divisions here and there. And I was devastated. And they ended up leaving the church. Now, when you have a big church, it it doesn't do the damage as it does in little churches, but it's still painful because when you're a mother and father in the house, you don't want to see any of your children go, quote, unquote. You love them. So they left, and there was residual effect and different people just saying things and leaving things. You know how accusations just kind of stick. Well, years pass, and I would always say, of course I forgive them. Of course I pray for them. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. I mean, I'm very spiritual. Of course I pray for them. And of course I, I would pray, you know, God, bless them, but I hope they get hit by a car. I never wanted them to die because I'm way more spiritual than that. But you know, like, I didn't really want them to be blessed. I didn't really want them to enjoy their life and prosper. So one night, after I had this meeting with this young lady in my church and realized how dirty I was, 
I have a dream. And in the dream, I'm with one of the ladies, and I'm in my husband's office. And we're having a conversation that gets very heated. And um, I, I know Texans, you probably take out a gun. We just fight with our hands. And um, so we end up, you know, pushing each other. And, and before you know it, I end up just taking her. And I just was like hitting her and hitting her. And of course, it was my dream, so I was winning. And, um, and in the dream, I start screaming, I'm winning. I'm winning. I'm winning. And the Holy Spirit said, you're not winning, Maria. You're losing. You're losing. You're losing. And I don't want you to wake up until you're laying your hands on her the way we're supposed to lay hands. I want you to start to pray. And to me, it seemed like it took hours because I couldn't get the words out. I didn't want her blessed. But finally, I started to pray blessings down. And I am telling you, when the Holy Spirit says to pray for your enemies, it's not only for them, it's for you. Because as I started to pray the blessing down, I literally felt the Holy Spirit come down on me. And then those, those tentacles, the, that thing, that leash that was stuck in my heart started to open up. And I felt free for the first time. I said, oh my God, this is the best medicine in the whole world. I'm saved 40 years. Why did I have to wait like 30 of them to really be a woman of the word, to really obey what your word says? And I made a list and I started to pray down blessings every day every day for people, that I would end up seeing certain people. And I forget, I forgot that we ever had anything. I would like go up to them in the street. I would say, hi, how are you? They'd be looking at me like, but oh my goodness, so clean. All of a sudden, as I started to pray for these women, a few months later, each one wrote me letters of apology. You see, whatsoever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatsoever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. And one of the ladies has come back to our church, and both of them are very dear friends of mine. Speaking from experience, I'm ending with this. Once you clean your heart from offense, you can't leave it vacant. It must be guarded. And there's only one other block of wood. There's only one other tree that can guard the heart and keep it offense free. There's only one other block of wood that resurrects and doesn't bury, that produces sweet fruit, not bitter fruit. And that's the weighty, massive tree of Calvary. When Calvary's tree is front and center, it becomes impossible to hang on to an offense because the innocent lamb of God hung on a splintered block of wood for you and for me. If we contrast what was done to us and compare it to what was done for us, there's no comparison to the debt Jesus paid for our sin. So we have a choice today. Forgive and let it go or hang on and let it grow. When we hang on to offense, our lives hang in the balance. And your life will come to a screeching halt. Spurgeon says, when God causes us to have no mercy on our sins, then he has great mercy on us. It is now war 
to the knife with sin, all sizes and sorts. Oswald Chambers says it is essential to give people a chance of acting on the truth of God. The responsibility must be left with the individual. You cannot act for them. It must be their own deliberate act. The paralysis of refusing to act leaves a man or a woman exactly where they were before. But when once he acts, they are never the same. It is the foolishness of this simple act that stands in the way of many who have been convicted by the Spirit of God. The moment I give myself over, the moment I live. The moment I truly live is the moment when I act with my whole will. Never allow a truth of God that is brought home to your soul to pass without acting on it. The weakest saint who transacts business with God is emancipated the second he acts. The word come, as our pastor said this morning, means to act. And sometimes that's the last thing we want to do. But the moment we do, the supernatural rush of the life of God invades us instantly. The dominating power of the world, the flesh, and the devil is paralyzed, not only by your act, but because your act has linked you to God and his redemptive power. I don't know if you're in this room today, but I know that God told me to give this word. And I'm going to ask you to be brave. If you're here today and you say, God, I want a clean heart. This is going to be my new motto, a clean heart at all cost. I don't want to hold anything, not even the slightest little dust ball in my heart. I want to be clean. I want you just to stand to your feet. And I'm going to ask our pastor to come and pray. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Don't let pride stand in your way. You might be offended at God. Maybe somehow God let you down. He did something. He made a decision and it wasn't what you were thinking it would be. Maybe you're offended at a parent. Maybe you've held it forever. They weren't what they should have been. And you're dealing with the consequences of that, of their acts, of their life. Maybe you've been hurt by another pastor in another church and you still, you're here, but you're kind of in the distance. Maybe there's an issue in your family and you have some ought with other family members. Pastor, 